Do you want to hold it until it's done? Okay, here we go. All right, we're recording. Many of you know that we have a guest lecturer this morning coming on in only 10 minutes from now. I want to make some introductory remarks. Will we please be sure that both of those doors are closed on both sides of this room, guys? Um, the guest is our missionary, Michael Imadi. And he's, he and his wife, Ashley, comes from our church, dearly loved, laboring in Dundalk, Ireland. Um, Michael is extraordinarily bright and learned, extraordinarily. But he's so humble and modest, you would never dream of the colossal knowledge that he has in, in his brain. <laughs> and to God be the glory, he makes some people that way. Uh, when it came to me in that regard, he said, no, put him over there. And uh, so I just don't have that. But it's wonderful what Michael knows. And he actually, we were talking, we were FaceTiming this week and last week, and I just said, hey, Michael, I've got an idea. My subject matter is canonicity. So why don't I just now, right now, go ahead and say that's the subject of um, determining which books really belong in the Bible and which ones do not belong in the Bible. It's a very important subject. And we naturally come to that at the end of our series on the doctrine of the scriptures, starting with the inspiration of the scriptures, the infallibility or the inerrancy of the scriptures, the clarity of the scriptures, the sufficiency of the scriptures, all these things, the transformational power of the scriptures. But we ended off by sort of getting scratched where hopefully some of us just naturally itched. Say, but how do we know which books really, I mean, that's the word of God, but how do we determine which books are actually the word of God? And that's what canonicity is about. So we're going to think about it for just a few minutes. We're going to look at a passage of scripture or two, and then Michael will be coming on with the help of Jeremy. I thank you, Jeremy, for helping to set this all up. And let's pray that it'll work well. Yesterday it did. That you all know about Murphy. He, he come, Murphy goes to church too. And he has some laws. So um, let me just pray. And then I'm going to make some of those introductory remarks. But anyway, I, I guess I didn't finish saying. So I say, Michael, since I'm dealing with canonicity, what would you think about me getting you on live through Skype or something like that? And you teach us about canonicity, because you know a lot more about it than I know. And he says, well, I'd be happy to do that. He said, in fact, I have an hour and a half long lecture on that subject. <laughs> I said, well, we're asking for 20 to 25 minutes. Bring it down where the rest of us are. And some of you saw my letter. I said, if you had a zoo, or maybe I didn't say that, but if you had a zoo and you, you could only have one feeding trough where would you put it, up high or down low? Remember, you got rabbits in your zoo. And I implied that you're all rabbits, by the way. So, but I could have, I could have said rats or something like that. You, and I want Michael, he's going to make an attempt to get it down so that we can all feed this morning and understand what he's talking about. And I'm sure he will do that successfully. So 
Let me pray. And by the way, just a little housekeeping deal. When we come to our discussion time, any and all questions are fair game. But what I would ask you to do is to get up, and you can even get in a line, because there may be five or six or seven of you that have questions, and stand right near Jason where that empty chair is in front of me. Because that way, when you raise your question, it will be recorded, and Michael will be able to see you, and he'll know who he's answering. And then as soon as you ask your question, unless you think you're probably going to have a follow-up question, and maybe you shouldn't, because otherwise not enough people will ask, go sit down. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, though we feel somewhat rushed, we don't want to rush into your presence. We quiet our minds and our hearts now and we acknowledge and confess to you that we need your blessing, we need your illumination, we need your help. Bless us as we think together about how you providentially governed by an objective standard, which books belong in the Bible and which ones don't. Help us to understand that and appreciate that. So bless our dear friend and your servant, Pastor Michael, as he teaches us today. May we go away from here saying, that was really helpful. I have more confidence than ever in my Bible. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, just by way of introduction, given the fact that in five minutes he should call us, I want you to turn to Luke 24 and notice verse 44. Luke 24, 44. These are the words of Jesus. And I want you to notice how he divided the Bible of those days up. Understand that the New Testament hadn't been written, okay? Jesus had the Old Testament. Paul had the Old Testament. Peter had the Old Testament, which were sometimes called the sacred writings. They had the Hebrew Bible. And Jesus divides it up, hopefully, in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. If you ever want to know what the subject matter of the Old Testament is, there it is. Jesus himself said, it's all about me. It starts with the law, it moves to the prophets, and it includes the writings of the Psalms. And if you think about it, that's the totality of the Old Testament. And Jesus was unapologetic in reminding his disciples, this book is about me. And it should be seen in that way. Well, the law of Moses was not only written, but saved and set apart. The message of the prophets were recorded, the messages, and collected. And the writings of primarily David and his son, Solomon, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, were gathered, collected, and saved. Those are the books that give evidence of divine inspiration. And they are the ones that constitute the Old Testament. 
There's no debate about the New Testament. There is a debate about the Old Testament between Protestants and Roman Catholics. So if I uh, say anything about Roman Catholicism today, and I'm quite sure I will, please understand it's not a bash. It's not being mean-spirited. It's being objective about a historical debate. And that debate continues because if you're a good Roman Catholic and you have a Roman Catholic Bible like I have, which for the most part is a wonderful and great translation. So when I preach at funerals and there are Roman Catholics present, I try to quote from it. But it has seven books that we don't have. And frankly, we don't believe that they belong in the Bible. And that was the debate. So <clears throat> it's important for us to understand what was the, what was the canon, what was the measuring stick, what was the criteria that made it clear which books belonged and which ones didn't. That's what we're going to be talking about. And basically what it's going to come down to is the evidence of divine inspiration and the confidence and testimony of the people of God at that time. That's what it's going to come down to, and a few other things. But I, I was going to quote this morning, but I, I'm quite sure I shouldn't now because Michael should be coming, and you'll see him, and we'll just tell him to hold on for one second. Second Maccabees would be one of the seven books of the what we call the Apocrypha. That's not a bad name. Um, that in chapter 12, verses 40, I don't know what it is, it's around, oh, it's verse 9, it's verse uh, 38, yeah, through 46, teaches. Hey, Michael, we'll be right with you. I'm just finishing my remark, okay? Good. Good. Teaches that when you die, you don't, if you're not, if you're a Christian, you don't go to heaven. You go to purgatory. That's just that's just a fact. That's that's Roman Catholic teaching. Why do you go to purgatory? So that your sins can be further purged, which means that the purging work of Jesus did not, in and of itself, absolutely purge our sins. This book also teaches the legitimacy of praying um, to and through or through the saints and praying for the dead, as though we can do something about people who are dead. Brothers and sisters, the truth of the Bible is that the second you die, you are either in an eternal place of punishment and torment, I said eternal, or you are in an eternal place of bliss and glory, and you're safe forever. That's what the Bible teaches. So you can see the debate is important. Debate is important because the gospel is at stake. So again, no bashing here. I may, I'll probably say a few more remarks this morning about um, the Church of Rome, only because our dear sister Marie, who's being baptized, was given uh, grace by God to see the gospel and to be delivered from that. And several times she uses the word Catholic. We love our Catholic friends. We believe there are Christians in the Catholic Church. We differ over the issue of the gospel but we want to differ in a gracious, loving, confident, biblically-based way. So maybe that's an introduction for uh, our dear friend and our missionary, Michael. Michael, thanks for joining us. Is your wife going to stick her head in there or not? Yes, she's very good. There she is. <laughs> Look at that. Pagan Joseph's daughter. 
I know they're so proud of her. She's a very sweet and dear. She told me she was going to be in pajamas or a robe or something. Remember, it's 3.30 in the afternoon in Ireland. And what do you go to bed at, 4 o'clock? <laughs> no. All right. So, Michael, my general question to you, and we're going to give you 20, 25 minutes to, to address this in any way you so choose. What, what really is canonicity? How do we, how do we legitimately determine which books that were written uh, end up in the Bible? We know, for example, brothers and sisters, that the Apostle Paul wrote probably hundreds of letters, but only 13 of them are in our New Testament. We know from what he says in Corinthians that he wrote a letter to the Corinthians that we've never seen. Is that tragic? No. It would be very interesting, but God didn't plan for that. But there's a criteria. There's an objective criteria. Michael's going to help us understand that, and probably he may make some references to how this all unfolded in the history of the church. So that's my general uh, question to you, Michael. Talk to us, and I'll try to, I will interrupt you when it's time to move to Q&A. Is that okay? Yes. Yeah, that sounds good. That sounds. And, uh, hopefully, hopefully the screen won't freeze here halfway through. Um, yeah, that's a it's a, a, a good question, um, and, and hopefully I can uh, do justice to to its answer. Uh, but here's the problem with starting with that question: is we can't know what the canon consists of. Uh, until we understand the nature of the canon, or the nature of what we're talking about. And since that question is being asked of the Bible, that's what we want to know, uh, we have to realize, and this is really important, that the answer to that question cannot be fully uh, answered by history alone. Right? This is a theological question, and it requires a theological answer. So I'm going to try to give you that theological foundation so that then, you know, as we look to history, we can see how it then uh, appropriately sits on that foundation. So uh, what is the nature of the canon that we want to know about? Well, let me give you two things that we, we need to keep in mind when discussing this. First uh, is that all scripture is theonustos. It's God-breathed, right? That's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed. So the first thing we got to keep in mind. And the second thing is that God has a particular purpose in giving these God-breathed books to the church. Okay? Those two things are extremely important, that all scriptures God-breathed, and that God has a purpose in giving these God-breathed books to the church. So it's the nature of the scripture that determines the canon of scripture. Right? It's the nature of scripture that determines the canon of scripture. Um, a guy that I listen to a lot uh, has really helped me. His name is uh, Dr. James White. Uh, he's, this is really helpful. He said this, uh, that without the act of inspiration, there would be no canon, right? If God didn't inspire any books, then there is no canon to even speak of. But then he goes on to, to say this, and I think this is really helpful. If you get this, really the whole canonical issue becomes very sim uh, simplified. It's that the canon is an artifact of revelation, not an object of revelation itself. Now, what does that even mean? Well, it means that the canon is the result of God inspiring some books and not all books, uh, but that the list, when you open up your Bible and the table of contents there, that list is not an object of inspiration itself. And so the canon is the result of inspiration, 
not an object of revelation. And so the foundation of the certainty of our knowledge of the canon is based upon God's purposes in giving scripture, not upon uh, history or the alleged authority of any ecclesiastical body. So we need to begin with what canon is in and of itself. That is, it's the, the authoritative books that God has given to his church. Okay? We need to start with that foundation. But this also means that we have to think about canon in a, a multidimensional way. Right? So if we're thinking about okay, now how does this all work itself out then? Well, if God chose to author some books, but not all books, then by the very nature of his authorship of canon of God-read books was created, whether we know it or not. Right? So let me give you a different example. Uh, John Grisham has written lots of books. Uh, maybe you've read some of them. I haven't read any of them. Uh, I don't know what the books of John Grisham are, uh, but he knows them. John Grisham knows which books are his and which are not. So the sheer fact that he has written some books means that there is a canon of John Grisham titles. And my ignorance of the titles does not mean that it doesn't exist. He knows what they are. I don't. So in the same way, when we talk about the canon, particularly of the New Testament, we have to think in this multidimensional way. In one sense, the canon was closed the very second that the Apostle John, uh, through the Holy Spirit, laid down his quill, having finished the book of Revelation. And that was the last book. And it might be helpful here again to kind of use the terminology that Dr. James White uses. He calls this canon one. So canon one is God's knowledge of the canon. He's the ultimate author. He knows which books are his, right? That's canon one. And then canon two, is human knowledge of the canon. And this knowledge is rooted in God's purposes. Again, we're going back to God's purpose. They're rooted in God's purposes for giving scripture, and that comes about in time. And so uh, because human recognition of which books are God-breathed is a temporal process, we should expect to see in history debate and discussion and argument about uh, which books are canonical and which are not. And so, you know, sometimes it might be helpful in this whole discussion of canon, uh, because we don't often start off on the right foot, um, it might be more helpful to think in terms of the stage of canon. Where are we in this whole process? And so the problem arises when we say that only history can answer the question of canon. Only an ecclesiastical body, only a church can determine the answer or only examining uh, the early church to see what books they used as scripture. Those are all necessary. I'm not saying that they have no purpose. They do. They're all necessary, but devoid of the theological foundation, they, they just result in lots and lots of errors. So we have to keep that in mind, that our certainty of the canon is not rooted in us, it's not rooted in history, but it's rooted in the fact that God has... Um, breathe out, that's the word there in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, these books, and that he has a purpose in giving them to the church. That's what our, our certainty and our uh, trust rests on. Uh, so let me just kind of step back now and make, I guess, just a few comments on maybe what's the, the most common view today of how we got the canon. Um, and that's what's been called the exclusive definition by some some authors like uh, Dr. Kruger, you don't need to know that name. Uh, but basically what it says is that the canon is a final closed list of books. 
And in light of that definition, you we really cannot speak of a New Testament canon until the end of the fourth century. And then most people uh, will point to one of the church fathers, a, a man by the name of Athanasius, who in his 39th festal letter, his uh, Easter letter, the 39th one, uh, in 367 AD, listed all the books of the Bible uh, that we use in our Bible. Those were the ones that he says, these are regarded as canonical. But you know, those who hold this, uh, this view say it's a final closed list of books, and that's when it happened. Um, some will say, well, uh, that's when it was closed. It began um, in the second century with this heretic named Marcion, who rejected lots of the New Testament books. He rejected the Old Testament. Any New Testament book that seemed too Jewish, uh, he's like, I got to get rid of that. We're not having that in, in as part of scripture. And so it was the Christian community who said, all right, we've got to now react to Marcion and develop our own canon. So some people will point to him. Others will say, no, it was a, a sociocultural concept. It was a political concept. Uh, it was a, an ideological instrument. You know, and all these things are just used by the, the Christian community to wield power and control. And, and that's really how the canon comes about. Uh, at least in their view, right? That's what they're, they're saying. But since those who, who hold this definition don't believe there's anything inherent about the books themselves, right? That's why I started the way I did. We can't talk about canon without talking about the nature of canon. Um, they don't see anything inherent about the books themselves. That makes them, uh, what makes them canonical is really just the decision of a community. So, you know, it, that's why it's usually pushed out to this late date of around the, you know, the end of the fourth century because uh, it has to be this consensus by a community that says, yes, this is it. It's history determined. But there's lots of problems with this. So, um, you know, we can appreciate that, you know, there's a focus on the church's role, which is important uh, in the formation here, particularly the New Testament. But the problem lies in seeing that the Christian community as the, the sole determinative factor in its creation, right? Again, there's nothing intrinsic about the books themselves, right? There's, there's nothing intrinsic about those books. It's just, well, the church said so. Right? Uh, there's another issue with it is that in this view, you really cannot speak of a canon until the New Testament canon has been officially, right, officially closed. Well, there's just so much ambiguity as to when that closing actually took place. Um, you cannot point to a, a moment in history and say, that moment in history, that's when the canon is closed. Right? And you can see that with the fact that we have 66 books in our Bible. Roman Catholicism has more books. Uh, the Syriac Church has less books. Um, so you can't point to a specific moment in history and say, that's when it was closed right there. Um, so there's all these there's all these issues that arise from it, uh, and then you know you you can ask well what is so different about the fourth century that we look at there and we say ah oh, that's where the canon takes place, right? It, it kind of assumes that prior to the fourth century that Christians did not really even have a canon or certain ways or think about books in that way. So there's just lots of um, there's lots of errors that result when you when you make that the foundation of your certainty of which books belong in the Bible um, is based on a community determined moment in history because it just doesn't exist and it has never existed. So maybe jumping off of that, I can um, since I mentioned Roman Catholicism and the, the that they have different books. Let me just talk very briefly about Rome. Um, 
at the center of Rome's, Rome's understanding of canon is her view of authority. Right? Rome clearly denies sola scriptura. Sola scriptura is that uh, the scriptures are the sole infallible rule of faith for the church. Right? It clearly denies sola scriptura. And in its place, uh, it's created this three-legged stool, uh, which consists of scripture, uh, tradition, and the magisterium. The magisterium is the, the church's teaching authority. Uh, so you've got these three elements that are supposed to hold up the, the well, that you know, the church is on. But while Rome claims that no leg of this three-legged stool is longer or more important than the others, functionally, it denies that when it is the magisterium that has the right to define and interpret both scripture and tradition. And so one of the, the documents that came out of... Um, Oh, it came out of Vatican II, uh, called their uh, De Verbum. Uh, what it says is that the task of authentically interpreting the Word of God, whether written or handed down, has been entrusted exclusively to the living teaching office of the Church. Right? And then, uh, if you've ever looked at the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church in section 83, it says a very similar thing. It says that in light of the tradition, uh, these traditions can be retained, modified, or even abandoned under the guidance of the church's magisterium. So the Roman Catholic magisterium has ultimate authority. Right? So what does any of that have to do with canon? Well, according to Rome, you cannot know which books are infallible and thus canonical without an infallible guide to tell you. It is, as a result, it's the Roman Catholic Church that establishes the, the contours of the canon. So if you, you can kind of see the connection of what we just talked about. And in this view, the Roman Catholic view, canon is community determined. That's what we just kind of were talking about. The Catholic Church delineates the contents of the canon. And when does that happen? Well, it doesn't officially happen until the Council of Trent in 1546. And then there's also this distinction that they make between the terms canon and scripture. So Scripture may be God's word, but you need an extra biblical revelation or declaration uh, that has to be made in order to identify the canon of Scripture. And so, again, the nature of the books are not considered at all. Right? The nature of the books are either jettisoned or they're just downplayed as compared to the uh, authoritative role of the church. And so, you know, there are, in fact, uh, some Roman Catholics who say that scriptural authority is derived from the church herself. Uh, one of the 16th century Roman Catholic cardinals uh, by the name of Hosius, he was a, a, pep, a papal legate to the Council of Trent, uh, said that the scriptures have only as much force as the fables of Aesop if it's destitute of the authority of the church. And so, you know, many arguments from Roman Catholicism uh, come at us as Okay, well, where is your inspired table of contents? Well, because how, how else will you know which books are supposed to be in the New Testament canon? And so you, you can see that the methodology of the Roman Catholic Church is quite similar to that of the exclusive definition that I, I just talked about before this. Now, let me just pause and say not every Roman Catholic uh, would agree with Hosius' statement there, uh, but many would. Many would. So let me, let me just give you a, a few... Um, Maybe responses that we can give to um, what Roman Catholicism brings up. Uh, first, if you know, what if we did have an inspired table of contents for the Bible? 
would that satisfy the objection for the Roman Catholic Church? I don't think it would, because then the question would remain, well, how do you know that this table of contents is inspired without the church telling you? Right? Well, if you say, well, here's another inspired book that says it's inspired, the question just pushed back a step. How do you know that that is, in fact, inspired? And so the existence of what they demand would never actually be satisfied by their own criteria. And uh, uh, one of the, a scholar by the name of Dr. Michael Krieger, uh, I think, just really nails it on the head. He says, in the end, um, the Roman Catholic objection is to some extent artificial. Such a table of contents would never satisfy their concerns, even if it were to exist, because they've already determined a priori that no document could ever be self-attesting. So um, you, you would never be able to satisfy what they're, they're looking for. Um, you could also um, argue that um, you know, the, the church came first, and then the canon seems to ignore the fact that early Christians did have a canon. So you know, the Roman Catholic argument is, well, the church kind of creates the canon. But the early church had a canon. Right before the church even existed, there was a canon. It was what we call the Old Testament. So the New Testament writers are drawing from these texts and speaking them as authoritative. Right? Jesus, Jesus says this crazy thing in Matthew twenty-two thirty-one. I don't know if you think this is crazy. I think this is crazy every time I read it. Matthew twenty-two thirty-one. Jesus is telling the Sadducees, um, you know, that they don't believe in the resurrection, and they gave him this test. And this is what he says. He says, "Have you not read what was spoken to you by God?" To me, that's, that's kind of crazy. How do you how do you read what somebody speaks? Right? We, we, we should be thinking, well, it should say, have you not read what was written, or have you not heard what was spoken? But that's not what he says. He says, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? So the early church had a canon. It was, it was the Old Testament. Um, you know, again, in the... It wasn't until 1546 at the Council of Trent that the Roman Catholic Church ever made a formal declaration on the canon. So are we really to understand that for the first 1,500 years of the church that nobody really knew what the canon was or which books to be looked to? Obviously not, right? I mean, uh, a Jew before the time of Christ, um, did he know that Isaiah was scripture? If he knew, what was, its guide? what was his guide? If he didn't know, why does Jesus hold him accountable for it? So there, there's just so many... Um, again, so many obstacles that are presented if you take that view that it has to be um, determined by a, a community without that foundational level of saying the nature of canon determines uh, what the canon is. All right, so let me kind of back off of Roman Catholic view here and just talk about the criteria. Um, how, how, do we, how did the early church know what to even look for? I think that's a good question to, to ask and to look at. And, and I like what, again, Dr. Kruger says on this. He, he says that we're not so much proving Scripture as uh, by looking at these criteria as applying Scripture to the question of which books belong in the New Testament. That's really important. We're not trying to prove Scripture, but we are applying Scripture to the question, what is the canon? And when this is done, we see that God has actually created an environment wherein uh, belief in too, the New Testament canon can be reliably formed. And so this includes things like um, exposure to these God-breathed books, uh, attributes of divine uh, canonicity, so divine qualities, uh, the fact that it was received by the church, uh, apostolic origins, not necessarily authorship, but apostolic origins, it bears authority. Uh, and then the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. And so no, notice that those things are not externally derived. 
but come from the scriptures themselves. So if God has a purpose in providing his church with God-breathed scriptures, then he will make them known and expose them to his people. And as such, his people, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, will, will guide them into recognizing which books are divinely inspired. And so you know, when we, we speak about apostolic origins of the New Testament books, we're not really saying that, um, hey, these books are written by the apostles but rather they are books which bear apostolic authority, authority which is derived from Jesus himself. And these are, are the works that don't just tell us about Jesus, uh, about his work on the cross, but are actually the product of Christ's redemptive work. Right? They're, they're the outworking of the authority of Christ, or the, yeah, the authority uh, of Christ that he gave to his apostles to lay down this permanent foundation for the church. So let me just talk about what books belong in the Old Testament and New Testament, and then uh, I'll stop. And you know, if there's questions, I guess we can we can go from there. So what about the Old Testament? Let's talk about Old Testament books really quick. The, what is the structure of the Old Testament? I think that's important because I, I think we're given in the New Testament what the structure of the Old Testament actually is. So in, in Romans uh, chapter three verse two, Paul writes that the Jews had the oracles of God. Right? They had to know what these oracles were. This was a defined body of works. And what, what we see when we look at the New Testament writings is that this structure is, is laid out for us. So uh, we look at Jesus and we see what books he's calling scripture. Right? And in Luke 24, 44, uh, right, it's, he's um, on the road to Emmaus. We read that you know, he says that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So you've got this threefold division. Uh, Moses, the prophets, and um, the Psalms. And the Psalms, since it's the biggest book, kind of stands for the, the last category, which is the writings. Um, and, but those are the three categories here. And, uh, these were not a nebulous set of books. Everybody knew what the writings of Moses were, or was. Uh, in Matthew 23, 35, Jesus tells the Pharisees, uh, he says this, so that upon you may fall the guilt of the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. All right, now, we just kind of read that and say, oh, he's giving examples. But you know, if you ask the question, well, where are these people found? Where, where is Abel found? In Genesis. Where is Zechariah, son of Berechiah, found? In Second Chronicles. And this was the structure of the Old Testament, of the Jewish scriptures. It started with Genesis and ended with Second Chronicles. And so it's the first book in the last book. And so Jesus is saying, look, on you falls all the blood of, from the beginning to the end of the, the, the Hebrew scriptures and everything in between. So by doing that, he's saying, hey, the, the first book is Genesis, the last book is, is Chronicles. And you know, this is attested by a lot of other people outside the Bible, Philo and Josephus, uh, the, the book of Ecclesiasticus, I'll, I'll speak on these things. So there's the structure, but what, what did it consist of? Well, um, consistently, you have the, the Hebrew scriptures referred to as 22 to 24 books, depending on whether Ruth was attached to Judges uh, and lamentations attached to Jeremiah, or if they were they were pulled apart. Uh, but this is consistent across the board. Uh, everything from Josephus to a work called Jubilees, uh, rabbinical Talmudic literature, uh, Aquila, who translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, um, everybody is saying it's 22 or 24 books, depending on, on those things. So if everybody knew it's 22 or 24 books, what were those books? They had to have known in order to count them, right? And so the question then is, did these books include the Apocrypha? And the answer has to be no. Did, 
Josephus identifies the 22 books as the five books of Moses, the 13 of the prophets, and the four of the writings. The 22 books that we have uh, in our, um, our Old Testament, uh, they count all of the uh, minor prophets as one. So even though we have 39 in the Old Testament, they are grouping them differently, but it works out exactly the same. It's the same books. Um, interesting as well, Josephus uh, notes that the 22 books were written between the time of Moses and Artaxerxes, and that the books afterwards were not considered canonical, which are the apocryphal books. And Jerome confirmed, confirmed this. So I think in the book you guys are reading, uh, he speaks a little bit about Jerome there. Uh, Jerome was one of only two church fathers who actually knew Greek and Hebrew. The other one was, was Origen. And so he wanted to only translate what the Jews regarded as scripture. And those are the ones that we have in the Old Testament. Um, he, he did not receive the Apocrypha as scripture. Uh, he never did. He rejected them because the Jews rejected them. But what happened is Augustine uh, recognized that this, uh, that this was true. Augustine said, yeah, the Jews reject them. The Jews do not believe these are Apocryphal, but we should accept them. And he just kept pressing upon Jerome. And so Jerome included it in his uh, Latin translation. Uh, and so there it was. And so the, the Apocryphal books were used by uh, many in the church. What's amazing is that uh, after Jerome and Augustine, <coughs> excuse me, for the vast majority of church history, everyone agreed with Jerome. There were a few who followed Augustine and said, yeah, the apocryphal works of scripture. But by and large, throughout the Middle Ages, up into the Reformation, everybody was saying, these are not scriptural. Even at the Council of Trent, the, the Roman Catholic Council of Trent, you have guys like Cardinal Cajetan, who was saying, these books are not scripture. The Apocrypha is not scripture, uh, but they had invested already so much in uh, theology and discussions of prayers for the dead and purgatory um, and just the general use of it for so long that uh, it was uh, declared canonical. But even at the Council of Trent, you had Roman Catholic scholars and cardinals saying these are not scripture. We shouldn't be accepting them. But in the end, that one won out. Um, so let me just be super fast on New Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, uh, by and large, throughout the early church, the church uh, was fairly was confident on the core, uh, but it was somewhat fuzzy around the edges. So there were two books, uh, two groups of books. You know, Jude, Second Peter, Second uh, Third John were kind of up in the air, but they had, you know, they recognized these books were were gospel. Were not gospel. They, they were they were scripture, but they had to have discussions about it. So there was never really any debate in the new, early church as to what was scripture and what wasn't. Uh, people will throw out things all the time, but half of this stuff is not true. You know, Gospel of Thomas and things like that. That was never in consideration. So uh, I'll stop there and PT, you can uh, ask questions or go from here. Okay, thanks, Michael. Um, give me one second to walk to the uh, microphone. Okay. And uh, make a few comments. And those of you who have questions, if, if you're ready, you, and surely you do, please don't be embarrassed to ask a question. There are no dumb questions in this class until the year is over. No dumb questions. <laughs> and that doesn't mean don't ask a dumb question. It means you can't ask a dumb question. It's impossible. Okay. So I'm going to go to the uh, microphone, and hopefully a few people will line up right back here to ask questions. So Michael, first of all, thank you very much. Um, we're ne of necessity drinking out of a fire hydrant. And this guy, it's not even fair to a guy like Michael who knows so much about this to say, please speak to us for 20, 25 minutes. 
um, you can appreciate the, the volume of knowledge he has on this subject and how easy it would be for him to, to talk to us for another hour uh, and only, you know, drink a glass of water or something in the middle of it. He's, so thank, thank you, Michael. Let me just ask you to do one more thing that's a class B miracle. Um, in one sentence, remind us then of the components, the two or three components of the criteria that determined whether or not a certain book belonged in the Bible. What are they? Just, just by summary, just name them in one sentence. If you do two, uh, we're going to withdraw our support from you as <laughs> I'm going to say right now my sentence is going to include a few semicolons. That's fine. Um, <laughs> so I, I would start by saying you can't immediately jump to that question. You have to always start with the nature of, of the scripture, which is their God-breathed and that God had a purpose for giving these God-breathed books to the church. That has to be the foundation before, <coughs> excuse me, before you talk about uh, cri uh, criteria. Semicolon. Um, so, so uh, I, you know, it's, it's exposure. It, obviously, a, a book can't be used as uh, scripture if the church isn't exposed to it. Uh, it's divine uh, qualities. So, uh, you know, just the, the nature of, of the, the, the scriptures, uh, the, the corporate reception by the early church, um, the, uh, you know, and, and uh, apostolic Origins, not necessarily authority, uh, and the internal dwelling of the Holy Spirit. I mean, those are the thing; those are the the things that, that work together. We can't pull them apart. All of those things are working together um, in history, such that the early church is able to identify and know what the uh, the canon is. That, that's very helpful, and I can see why you had to use semicolons, and I know you could have used a lot more. Uh, Jeremy, are you able to hold that up and just uh, pan the group so that Michael can see the the number of people in our church who are interested in this subject. Hello. Joe, full room. There's 80 some people in here right now, uh, maybe more. But you've done a tremendous job, Michael. You did exactly what I hoped you would do, and I thank you for your time. Um, so, are there any questions? No one has come to the. Yeah, here we got one. This is Jessica. Hi. Okay. My question comes out of having a lot of Catholic family, honestly they're aging, probably nearing yeah. death, very ill, and questions from them are coming up now, um, and what I'm coming to see is that Catholics, while this has been a big discussion in the Catholic Church, don't often highly regard scripture as inspired necessarily, the Catholics I'm coming across, um, how yeah. would you speak to them about why we believe this is God's word. This is God breathed. Man, that's a good question. Um, and I, and yeah, <laughs> I, I, you know, living in Ireland, I, I see that uh, firsthand everywhere. Um, man, that is a, that's a great question. Um, I, I, I think, uh, man, each instant, each instant is going to be different depending on the person you're talking to. But just to give some, I guess general, uh, a general framework. Um, I, I, I think you know if you're having discussion about the the nature of scripture, you, you you're going to have to maybe ask questions like, 
well, what, you know, ask the question, uh, what did Jesus think of the scripture? How, how is he looking at um, scripture? What is he saying about it? How is he using it? And, and take it to Jesus, because when you see Jesus using the Old Testament as authoritative outside of the context of a church telling you what this means or that this is authoritative, you know, it, it puts it in a different perspective. And you can go to places like 2 Timothy 3.16 and say, um, look, look at what look at what Paul says. All Scripture is God breathed. If God is the one breathing out these words, is this not more important? Is this not more uh, powerful and authoritative than anything um, any church says? Because these are His very words. Um, you know, in, in situations where somebody is is very close to death. Um, Honestly, I probably wouldn't even have that discussion. I think I would uh, probably go to the nature of salvation and say, um, look, the, the, here is what the Bible says, right? That salvation is rooted in, in Christ's work and what he has done on the cross for you. And all you have to do is just believe and, and, and you will have life. And then, you know, you can compare that to say, but look at what Rome teaches. Rome says that... You, know, you really can't even know what the scripture says unless we tell you it, unless you uh, hear it from us. And so, um, man, that, that's, pro that's probably a horrible answer to your question, but that, that's it's such a good question. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we are still trying to answer that for a lot of people here because every situation is different. And there, a lot of times Roman Catholics, especially where we are, are so um, just ingrained with the fact that authority comes from the priest, not the scriptures, that trying to help them see that scriptures are authoritative. Not what I say, never take anything that I say as, as gospel. You take what I say and then look at the Bible and say, is that, is that what you see in the Bible? If it's not, then reject whatever I say. But if it is, then realize I need to follow after uh, what uh, scripture has said. Um, hey, Michael, let me just interrupt. Yeah. Tremendous answer. And especially, that was so helpful toward the end. And I was just thinking as a pastor, the same thing. If you're dealing, Jessica, with someone who's really close to death, let's say they're you know, they're in the hospital, it's their last days, don't have that debate at all. If they want, yeah. if they're not near death, if they're struggling with our view and their view, then enter into that apologetic discussion graciously and patiently. But um, you're saying these are elderly folks, they're nearing death. Michael is exactly right. And Michael, I couldn't help but think of I'm looking at you, I know you're not looking at me, which is a blessing for you. Uh, I, you remember Michael Spurgeon's famous statement about defending the scripture, and this is true about defending any view of, the, for example, which Bible is the most authoritative in terms of inspiration. He said you don't have to defend a lion, you just open the cage and let it out. So when we're uh, witnessing to someone just and use the Catholic Bible. I mean, these folks know I'm holding up a big Catholic Bible right here, and then you can turn to hundreds, hundreds of gospel passages. I'll give you one illustration: First Timothy two five. This is the way it reads. And the truth is this: God is one. One also is the mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Which is um, their way of saying there's only one mediator between God and man. That's what our Bible says. That truth is found. Hundreds of gospel passages are found in the Catholic translation. So you might even choose to say, 
Grandma, I want to read to you from your Bible. This is this what I'm reading is the Word of God. You're not saying your Bible is all that I think it should be. You said this is the Word of God. And if yeah. you don't have a Catholic Bible, which many of you don't have, just read out of your Bible because your confidence yeah. is in the Scripture and the Holy Spirit behind the Scripture, not in winning an argument over the canon. So that's all. But I don't want to elaborate. Well, hey, PT, can I just say one thing Absolutely. really quick? Because no one else is standing in line right now. Does anyone else want to? Okay, Tom, come up here. Lester, come up here. Get in line. And you say what you want to say, Michael. And we have to okay. about. Uh, I was just going to say, you know, uh, you can believe that the Apocrypha is Scripture. I don't think it is. I think there's lots of proof against that. You can believe that it's Scripture and still be a Christian because believing the Apocrypha is Scripture does not remove God's saving grace from someone. So you can use you, you can you know if they're if they're willing to read you know the the Catholic Bible that's got the apocrypha uh, just as you said there it's it's that faith in Christ that saves you not whether or not you say oh First Maccabees is scripture so um, but yeah I just yeah, wanted to say I think you're exactly right there PG. That's helpful, Tom Paul. You know who Tom is, um, our dean of missions. Uh, he used to be the Roman Catholic. Am I right, Tom? You grew up in the Catholic Church. All right, ask your question, please, to Michael. Hey, Michael. Oh, back up. Back up? Yeah, there you go. Oh, there you go. He <laughs> <It> can hear <laughs> you. <laughs> hey, Michael, even today's uh, Protestant churches, I'm going to say Protestant, many churches teach that the teachings of Paul, especially when it comes to things like no, uh, only men can be pastors, only men can be uh, deacons, uh, the social structure of women and men and so forth, we're all written in a time when that was the society's view, but we don't have to hold true to that in this society today. So, in other words, men can be, women can be pastors, etc. I'd like you to comment on that if you were. Good question. Thanks, Tom. Well, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a, a whole other issue outside of canon, but, uh, I mean, just very briefly, um, the, the qualifications for elders... Are, are set up not in a cultural context as if, you know, this is fitting into the larger letter of Paul and saying, oh, um, this is how it's working here, which I think uh, things like head coverings uh, are. Uh, it's very, it's within the context itself, he's talking about a cultural position. But um, when you look at the qualifications for elders and how those are supposed to, uh, how the church is set up uh, in those places in the scripture, in, in Timothy and Titus, um, even as you look in Acts, in uh, no time, in no place is that uh, set within a, a cultural context, but rather it's given as a, a direct uh, statement and command. This is how it's supposed to be. So, you know, without going too much into that, you know, we, we, you have to look at the context in which those things are coming up. And uh, I would argue that those who are saying, who uh, would take that, that other position that really there's no difference, pretty much anybody can be a pastor. I, I don't think that would hold to a uh, to a, a an analysis of the text, um, wh whichever one you want to bring up, I don't, I don't think that would hold together. Um, Thank you. Yeah, it's an important question. Um, one more, but, we have at least one more yeah. question here from Lester Cantrell. Hey, Michael. Hey, Lester. Hey, uh, this question is going to come from two different perspectives. One is an unbeliever. One is a one is a believer. Okay. So, uh, in a culture where there is a very little respect for authority at all. What would you say to an unbeliever who asks you, well, how do you know that that's the word of God? Mm. And then the second one, I, basically, I want to hear some of your basic apologetics on that one. The second question coming from a Christian, what's your favorite defense 
that the Apocrypha is not canon? What's your, like, I know you, you've got several criteria that would tell you and, and how you would test whether scripture is scripture or canon is canon. What's your favorite one? Okay, and Michael, you have uh, two minutes to do that. <laughs> okay, we got one minute for each. Okay, I'll start in reverse. Okay. So, uh, Apocrypha is not canon. Um, as you look at uh, the, the Apocryphal books, uh, there are historical inaccuracies in there that I think preclude them from even uh, being considered scripture. Also, the Jews rejected them. Everybody in the Middle Ages rejected them. Roman Catholicism, uh, Roman Catholics up to the Council of Trent rejected them. Uh, so there's no, there's just no historical basis for even saying that they, they have a chance. I mean, Augustine thought they were because um, because they were, he was using them uh, and, and found them helpful. So um, there's just no way uh, that they could possibly be. Um, as far as the other one, how do you know their scripture? My goodness, that's a good question. Ultimately, you can't know because uh, it, it requires the, the movement and power of the Holy Spirit in somebody's life to open their eyes. And so you can give all the arguments you want, but they will never see it because the Spirit has to open their eyes. And when their eyes are open, then uh, you, see, you see things as they really are. Uh, but in a culture where you know, authority is pretty much rejected, everybody has an authority. I, th I think what I would do is I would try to analyze or talk to that person and figure out what is their authority. And most of the time for atheists, it's their own intellect. Um, it's saying, well, I have my own logical um, abilities and that's my ultimate authority. Well, you have to then put uh, you know, their authority against the scripture and say, okay, well, what is the grounding for that authority? What, you know, how, can you, how can you establish logic as a, an actual authority? Where are you getting that? And only, it's only within the Christian worldview, based on scripture and the fact that there is a triune God, does logic even make sense? And so people will use logic all the time, not realizing they're borrowing from the Christian worldview in order to um, make any sense of it. So that, that's a, that first question you had, Buster, is a good question. It's, it's a difficult question because it requires the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but I would just say, uh, talk to the individual, see where their ultimate authority is, and then try to help them see that they're borrowing from your worldview in order for that authority to make sense. Because without the scriptures and the triune God, it has no legs to stand on. Awful. One would think, Michael, that you're a presuppositionist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, Michael, that made me have you, a little bit there. <laughs> Pastor Thad Gunderson from our church, one of our newer... Yeah, leaders. briefly while we were there last summer. Okay. In just a moment, you can make your way up here, Thad, please. Uh, he's going to lead us in our closing prayer. Um, I'd say come here so that for the sake of everyone here listening, just come on through with all your height. <laughs> he's, he's a giant. He recently, Michael recently had a guest... Uh, from the states who wrote a book on the giants, right? And he's, this is our guy. Uh, Michael, I want to thank you for taking the time. Um, we thank God for the knowledge he's given you. This is just an inkling of the kind of knowledge. This knowledge of Hebrew is like from another planet. And, uh, but he's a pastor. And as I get to talk to Michael from time to time, and Ashley, I, I can tell you that I would be happy for him to be my pastor. He's a dear, dear, humble, loving man of God who preaches and teaches the word of God. And we need to pray earnestly that they will get their visa because if they don't, if it's denied, they have to be married. 
very quickly. But we're hoping they can stay and, and pursue this ministry they're involved and eventually plant a church. So thank you again. Could you tell Ashley to get in there? Ashley, stick your head in there one more time. Thank you. And stay there. Don't leave. I'm like looking for him in there. sitting right over here. They're so mom and dad. You see? Hey! <laughs> Um, so we love you guys. It's a privilege to support you, and you helped us today to finish our section on the doctrine of the word by helping us better understand what canonicity is all about. So we want to pray, and Pastor Thad is going to lead us, and then we will be dismissed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is a blessing to be in this group and see 80 or 100 people saying, I want to know God more. We have an awe of you, God, and in the same sense, we have an awe of your word. And it's we, we live in a culture where it's kind of normal to say, oh, yeah, I believe in God. Oh, the Bible. Yeah, that's that's good. Saying that this book is good or that book is good. But, Lord, we know that your word is, is forever settled in heaven. We know that you breathed it out. And we trust in how you worked in history to bring about your perfect word. Yes. And we worship you for that. Yes. Um, Lord, we ask today for your special blessing on the Amadis, yes. Michael and Ashley and their kids. Lord, they're doing hard work in Ireland, but, but Lord, needed work, desperately needed work. And um, what we do ask that their visas will be... Will be um, uh, renewed. Lord, we ask that they would continue to minister there. But Lord, however you choose to work, we worship you and we recognize your good hand, um, whether in the Old Testament or even in our own lives when we see difficulty. And we can echo what Ezra said, what Nehemiah said, when they said the good hand of our God is upon us. And we ask that good hand to be on the Amadis and to us as well. In the name of Jesus, amen. amen. Thanks, Michael. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you. What great signature. Yeah. Thank you so much. I don't know what I what I would have done. If you had to help us. Thank you so much. Let's push a stop on this. Stop. Sure. Maybe he already stopped it. I don't think so. Yeah, it's 58 minutes. Okay. All right. Good. Looks like we got enough.